Good evening, my name's Ed, I'm the congregational pastor of this service, and if I've not met you, I'd love to meet you after our service. I hope you can stay for supper as we hang out together. Uh, In a moment, I'm going to ask everyone to turn in their Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. Don't go there yet. Uh, And there are many amongst us who've been Christian for a long time, but I do wonder how many of us are going to have to look up the index to find this book. Uh, It is a a little-known book, uh, but it's got a great message. So why are we going to spend the next 10 weeks in the book of Nehemiah? Well, Nehemiah is all about our identity. It's about who we are as a people distinct, set apart for God. It's about who we're going to be, what we're going to live like, a people holy, set apart, chosen for God. When we think about the idea of our identity and about shaping our identity, we're often very Western and individualistic about how we think. We say, you know, I don't want my family background to define who I am, and I don't want my, my cultural heritage to define who I am, or, or my religious upbringing to define me. But go to other cultures around the world, the stories of who they are and where they come from absolutely shape who they are. We are collectively defined in, in, in terms of who we are. Now, sometimes we don't mind this idea. For example, you might go to a Sunday roast with your family, and what do you do at that time? You share stories. So one of my family's stories, Grandpa wanted to marry Grandma, and he came back from the war to do it. And he told her to meet her at a certain train station at a certain time and to bring a dress. And he turned up at the train station, and there she was waiting at that time with a dress. And we tell that story because it teaches us about who we are, about what kind of family we are, a, a people who keep our word, a people who are loyal and faithful to each other. Uh, and, and it becomes sort of folklore. It's like grandpa's wedding story, you know, and everyone knows what we're talking about. I wonder if you know Nehemiah and the story of Jerusalem's war. Because if you're one of God's people, then it's your story. It's a story about who the people of God are and who you are and are going to be. It's a great story about how this man, Nehemiah, a governor of God's people, led God's people in this extraordinary feat of human strength and divine grace to rebuild the broken down walls of Jerusalem in 52 days. But it's more than just a story about a broken down wall And that's why we've called it uh, Restore and Revive, because a wall wasn't all that God's people needed to be distinct. They needed to live distinctive lives. They needed revived holiness, and they needed to take God's word seriously. And they're the kind of things that we're going to see as we go through this book of Nehemiah. It's going to ask us the questions, uh, who are you going to be 7 p.m.? Who are you going to be as a people distinct to God? Uh, How are you going to work together as a united people in doing God's work, in bringing about and forwarding God's kingdom purposes? And and what's it going to look like for you to be a holy people, to take God's word seriously and apply it in your lives? They're the kind of things we're going to explore as we go through Nehemiah. To do that, we've got this little booklet. You might be sitting on one or have one on the floor underneath you. Uh, This is a gift from us to you. And we hope that you can use it to lead and guide you through our our sermon series. Come with me to page 12, where you'll find space for sermon notes. Uh, There's space to write down any notes that you want to take throughout our sermon series. 
Also, you can use this to guide you in daily Bible reading. There's some Bible reading suggested here and a memory verse for each week that you could consider memorizing. Uh, it also can be used for your calendar. It will guide you uh, in what events are coming up at church. Uh, if you turn over the page, you'll notice that normally there would be connect group Bible study materials. Uh, this term, we're doing something a little different in our connect groups. Uh, we're going to be studying what God says about, uh, about radical generosity and how we can be generous with our time, talents, and money. Our time, yes, that's fine. Uh, and, and also about how we can explore our spiritual gifts and playing our part in the family of faith. So that's what you're going to be doing in your Connect Group Bible studies. So we're going to get stuck into Nehemiah. We're about to read it, but let me lead us in prayer before we do that. God of heaven, you caused the events of Nehemiah's life and ministry to be written down for our learning and for our instruction. So teach us now that we might learn the lessons that you taught him and your people and that you might shape us into the family of believers that Jesus died for us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is Ben, and he's going to tell you what page number Nehemiah is on, so you don't have to be embarrassed. Hi, if you'd like to turn to page 412, it's about a third of the way through. Nehemiah chapter 1 from verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said... Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon... I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people who you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant 
and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was the cupbearer to the king. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Ben. Uh, one of the greatest uh, books or the most, most influential books uh, of all time, John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, had a huge impact on the world as we know it, uh, starts with this interesting statement. It says, All wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of self. And the book of Nehemiah starts in much the same way. It asks the question, do you know who you are, a child of God, one of God's people? Do you know who God is, great and awesome, powerful God? Do you know the one whom you serve and pray to? And that's the way we're going to explore through this first chapter of Nehemiah, asking the question, who are you as a child of God, and who is the God to whom you pray? Well, do you know who you are? Nehemiah certainly did. Nehemiah introduces himself in this book to us as the son of Hakaliah. Uh, he was, Nehemiah, a faithful Israelite living in a foreign land. He tells us that his father was Hakaliah. We find out he was a, a man from the tribe of Judah. Uh, we also discover that this Israelite is living in a place called Susa, the, the citadel, the fortress city of Susa, the winter capital of the Persian Empire. Uh, we also discovered at the end of our reading that Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. So what's a faithful Israelite doing in the wrong part of the Middle East? Well, open up in your um, little booklet to page five where you're going to find a Bible timeline. And I'm going to help us uh, explore through this timeline uh, who Nehemiah was and how he might have grown up and how he fits into God's big story of salvation. Nehemiah would have been circumcised on the eighth day of his life, in keeping with the covenant that God made with Abraham, that, God's, that, that Abraham's descendants would become God's people, that he would give them, that God would give them a land which would become God's place, and that he would become a blessing to all the people of the earth. Growing up, Nehemiah would have sat on his mum's lap and she would have told him stories at night time about Moses and the Exodus and God's mighty redemption of his people by his outstretched hand, how he, he took God's people out of Egypt and brought them to himself, leading them through the Red Sea. Well, when Nehemiah was, uh, was coming of age at his bar mitzvah, uh, a 13-year-old, he would have had to have repeated part of the, the Jewish law, uh, something that Jewish boys still do today. Uh, the law was given by God to Moses at Mount Sinai. And this law was all about how God's people are to live in relationship with the God who saved them. Well, Nehemiah, you can imagine him lying on his bed at night, rolling around, trying to get to sleep, thinking, I wonder when I grow up, I want to do great things for God, and I wonder what kind of servant... I might be for God. I wonder if I'll be like Joshua, the man who led God's people into the promised land and circled the, the city of Jericho and brought the walls crumbling down. 
Or perhaps I might be one of God's great warriors like the judges, like, like Samson or, or maybe like Gideon, the, the man who was timid and scared, but God brought about a courageous victory through him and, and just 300 men. Well, perhaps I'll become like great King David. You know, David who slayed Goliath and, and became this great king of, of the nation of Israel. Maybe I'll grow up to be a leader like him. He, he established our people in the city of Jerusalem and in the land, and, and we began to be a people at peace, and, and God's blessings began to flow out. But then Nehemiah would have thought to himself, what am I doing in Persia? Dad, what went wrong? And Hakaliah would have said to Nehemiah, son, don't be like the kings of Israel. They began to harden their heart to God's word. They began to turn their hearts away from God and turn it to other gods. And so just like their relationship and our relationship with God began to be fractured and splintered and divided, so our people and our land began to break up. So Rehoboam, Solomon's son, under him the kingdom divided in two. The northern kingdom became known as Israel, the ten tribes of the north. And they eventually went down a downward spiral until in 722 BC, they were exiled to Assyria, and that was the end of the nation. We are the southern kingdom of the tribe of Judah. We continue to remain faithful to God, but our kings kept making bad choices. Our people kept turning their hearts away, and eventually the most tragic thing happened. In 597 and 587 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians came, and he razed our city, Jerusalem, to the ground. He tore down our temples, took away all our sacred articles. He pulled down the walls and burned up our gates. And then he took God's people out of the land. This was an utterly devastating time for God's people. This was as bad as you can imagine in the plans and purposes of God. Israelites must have thought, it is over. But what Nehemiah's family and forefathers discovered and what he discovered was that God wasn't finished with his people. Nehemiah would have grown up going along to synagogue, which is when synagogue started in this time in exile. And on the Sabbath day, he would have been reminded that God hadn't given up. He still had a plan for his people. He'd been faithful to his promises. And when Cyrus the Great, Cyrus the Persian, conquered the Babylonian Empire, well, he allowed some of God's people to return back to Jerusalem. So under the first return, Zerubbabel, led God's people in 538 BC. They returned to the land and they restored the temple. The temple was back. And Nehemiah would have known his compatriot, Ezra, 13 years before these events. Ezra had taken a second group back to Israel in 458 and they had revived the worship of God in the temple. And now the year is 445 BC and it's time to restore the walls around Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. When you hear cupbearer, don't think uh, butler, uh, don't think glorified waiter. No, think here's a man that the king of the known world, the king of Persia, trusts so deeply that he trusts him with his life. Nehemiah's job was to choose wine for the king, taste and test that wine, that it wasn't poisoned, and then give it to the king. Nehemiah and the king of of Persia, King Artaxerxes, were spit buddies. And they were so close 
that, uh, that Nehemiah was taken like a nanny who a family really likes and they take them on holidays. Nehemiah had been taken off to the fortress city of Susa over the winter. And it was there that this terrible news comes to him from one of his fellow Israelites, Hananiah. This terrible news comes, and we can read it in verse 3. Read it with me. Those who survived the exile, Nehemiah, are back in the province, and are back in the province. They're in great trouble and disgrace. Literally, the word is they are a reproach. And that to Nehemiah, that reeked of the reason that God's people got kicked out of the land. They became a reproach to the nations around them. This was devastating. He, he would have thought maybe Ezra could, could have restored God's people. Maybe things started turning around. We'd worked so hard in exile to, to maintain our distinctiveness. Maybe when they got back under Ezra, things would be looking better. But no, the same news was, was still bad news. The walls, Hananiah tells him, the walls of Jerusalem are still broken down. The gates have been burned with fire. It's not new news. This is the same old bad news. The walls are in ruins. God's people are in great trouble. And this news literally took the wind out of Nehemiah. It was like a punch in the guts. And he says, verse 4, When I heard these things, I sat down and I just wept. For some days, we later discovered that those some days were 120 days, four months. He mourned, he fasted, and he prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah is taking this news pretty hard, isn't he? And I wonder why it hit him so bad. Didn't he have a pretty bright future? You know, here he is, one of the most influential positions, ear of the king of the known world. This guy's got it going on. Well, you see, Nehemiah, he knew that he was always, first and foremost, an Israelite. He had never let himself so settle in Persia that he became one of them. No, he was always first and foremost, a child of God. Then he was a resident of Persia. He'd worked hard to maintain his distinctiveness. He'd done it by reading his scriptures, by praying his prayers, by meeting with God's people. And I wonder if the same could be said of you and me. Are we first and foremost children of God, sons and daughters of the Most High, or are we first Sydney-siders? First, doctors, lawyers, bankers, accountants, club members, husbands, wives. Are they the first things about us? Or are we first Christians? And then all those things beyond that. Well, the Bible tells us that Sydney is a beautiful... Well, it doesn't tell us Sydney is a beautiful place. Sydney is a beautiful place. But it tells us that it is not truly our home. No, we are aliens and strangers in this land. As beautiful as it is, we are just temporary residents here. Our home, our true home, is with God in heaven. Our our true home is expressed now in this gathering. This is where we should feel most at home. And and one day, we'll ultimately be home when we get to be with God. But how can you tell where, where your real identity lies? What are you first? Well, for Nehemiah, it was revealed by the things that troubled his heart. And here are the things that troubled him. I wonder if, in fact, they trouble you as well. Uh, The distress of God's people was distressing to Nehemiah. Uh, The holiness holiness of God's people being compromised 
was a concern of Nehemiah's heart and it caused him to mourn and grieve. The fact that God's name was being dragged through the dirt and they were, God's people were a reproach, well, it, it brought Nehemiah down to the dirt. Nehemiah knew that for the plans of God to move forward, God's people needed to be back in God's place, Jerusalem, and, and the walls needed to come up, the people needed to be distinct, and then the king would come and God's blessings would go to the ends of the earth. And God's plans and purposes, they've moved forward in time, haven't they, for us? You and I know that King is King Jesus. We know that we are God's people now and that we are in God's place. We are in Christ. And that through him, the blessings of God are going out to the ends of the earth. And those blessings go as the gospel of Jesus, the news of Jesus spreads. So does it upset you when you hear that the means of blessing, the gospel, is being squeezed out of our schooling systems? Does it concern your heart when you, when you realise that our voice is being silenced in public? We're being told to sit down, shut up and go away. Does it upset you when you discover that university Christian groups are being increasingly marginalised and opposed so that the gospel is not finding place in, in our academic institutions? Well, what do we do when we come to these sort of crises in faith when it looks like maybe the purposes of God are being derailed? Well, Nehemiah is a great example to us. He did what we should always do first. He prayed. He knew that there was more to do than just pray, but he knew that until he'd prayed, there was nothing better that he could do. So uh, our second thing we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at his prayer and we're going to think about knowing who God is, uh, knowing who the God to whom we pray is and, and what it's going to look like uh, to pray powerful prayers like these. So there's lots of praise, prayers that are getting prayed in our world, aren't there? Lots of prayers uh, doing very little uh, in the world around us. But here is a prayer that has actually changed the course of human history. So what is it that we can learn from a prayer like this one that Nehemiah prayed? Verses 5 to 11 uh, it's, is where the prayer is. And I wonder if I asked you to sort of sum up what you think the, the big theme of this prayer is. I wonder what perhaps you'd suggest. I think the, the really key theme of this prayer is just God, who God is. He's a great and awesome God. He's a covenant God. He's, he's one who's been faithful. Uh, he's one who keeps his promises. Uh, he's one who has chosen for his name to dwell on his people and and this city, Jerusalem. I think the theme is, is God, and, and that's how it starts in verse 5. Nehemiah prays, verse 5, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. And if you're going to pray powerful prayers, you need to know that about the one to whom you pray. That he is not restrained by your geographical location. He is not... Um, constrained or, or, or withheld by the political or social situation in which you live. No, you are praying to the great God of highest heaven. You are praying to the one who can do immeasurably more than all you ask or imagine. You are praying to the one who can make the impossible possible. And not only is he the God of highest heaven, but he's also a God of intricate detail. He's the God who inclines his ear Towards us, verse 6, Nehemiah says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer that your servant is praying before you 
day and night. It is a remarkable thing about our God, isn't it? That at this very moment, he is maintaining and sustaining and, and, uh, and watching over seven billion people in our world. And yet he is, in a special way, inclining his ear to the prayers that Bree led 7 p.m. here at Kirribilli. He is attuned to our prayers. And it matters that you know that, especially when you find yourself praying prayers day and night, like Nehemiah was praying. This was an ongoing prayer that he prayed before the God of heaven. And sometimes uh, the only thing that's amiss in our praying is that we haven't prayed long enough. We haven't kept going. It's said that God answers prayers in three ways. Uh, Yes, no, and not yet. My son Tommy, uh, late last year, developed a love for the English Premier League football uh, code. And uh, he decided that the, um, the fulfilment of this love would be to get for himself a Manchester City football jersey. Sorry to other club fans out there. Uh, but that was what it was going to be. And uh, it was well within my means, my capabilities, and well within my financial capacities to get him the jersey straight away. Uh, but I wanted to teach him that good things come as we wait. I wanted to teach him the, the wonder of longing for something, of asking and, and working towards something. So he started working for a dollar for every 10 minutes because he gets a bit distracted when he starts a job, so only in 10-minute increments. And, uh, and he kept asking and waiting and asking and waiting and working. And then eventually I surprised him. On my birthday, one of my presents was actually his jersey. And when he opened it, oh, it just brought tears to my eyes watching how excited he was to finally get the jersey. And God often does the same with you and me, doesn't he? Because he loves us, he wants us to know the reward of waiting and working and longing and pleading for something. But he's, he's not, a, he's not a, rude, a mean father. He is a good, good father. And he loves to give good gifts to his children who ask him. So know that it's okay to keep on praying prayers for him, to him day and night. And that sometimes the sweetness of discovering those things becomes so much sweeter when we've worked hard for them and waited long. Another theme that comes out in Nehemiah's prayer is the way that God has just been so faithful to his covenant. Uh, Verse 5, You, Lord God, are the God who keeps your covenant of love with those who love you and keep your commands. But we, we have been anything but, he says. We have been so unfaithful to your covenant. And uh, we started tonight thinking about individual and corporate Identity, And this is where the rubber really hits the road because you might have noticed that Nehemiah is here confessing sins that he didn't have anything to do with. So verse 6, halfway through, Nehemiah starts to confess, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted wickedly towards you. Nehemiah wasn't even alive. He, He wasn't even there when the Israelites were sent into exile. He had nothing to do with the things that got them kicked out of the land. But he steps in and he takes responsibility for it. And he confesses those sins. And in a similar way, it's right for us to own the sins of God's people. It's right for us to apologize to those who've been hurt or abused by the church. 
It's right when you meet someone who's been hurt by a Christian on the other side of the world to, to deeply empathize with them and to say, I'm so sorry to hear that. It's right for you to apologize if, if uh, the actions of Israel Falau have, have hurt a friend of yours. But it's also right for you to stand with Israel Falau because he is your brother. And I don't know how you feel about this idea of taking responsibility for sins that you didn't commit. But Jesus was comfortable with it. He came to be one of God's, rebel, uh, one of God's people living uh, amongst them and, and within their rebellion. He underwent baptism, John's baptism of repentance, to show that he associated with God's fallen people. And he took all the sins of God's people upon himself. So Jesus knows that the path to restoration, the path to revival, uh, begins with taking responsibility for what has gone wrong, uh, for owning the sins of ours and the sins of our fathers uh, and turning away from them. And it's right that we would confess uh, sins that we haven't necessarily committed. Well, we can confess these sins and failures to God because God loves to restore. He loves to restore. He loves to revive. And that's what Nehemiah prays in verse 8. Remember, God, the instructions you gave your servant Moses. Uh, it's not that Nehemiah's praying this prayer because God's particularly forgetful. No, he's saying he's bringing God's uh, promises back to mind. Verse 9, you said in Deuteronomy 30, God, that if your people return to you and start obeying your commands, then even if we're right at the farthest horizon of the earth, You'll gather us from there and bring us back to the place you've chosen, the place that we know is Jerusalem. Nehemiah knows that God's not forgetful. He knows everything he said. But how do you feel about this idea? Nehemiah is holding God ransom to his promises. Not in a sort of power over God kind of way, but perhaps like a child might do to their parent. Perhaps you would have used to do this to your parents. You used to say, Mum, you said it would be pizza for dinner. Did I? When did I say that? You know, my kids do this to me. Dad, you said I'd get a lollipop after swimming. When did I say that? I really don't remember. I've got one of the worst ones at the moment is uh, they say to me, Dad, you said when Tommy turns 10, you'll take us to Africa. And I thought <laughs> when he was four, it seemed like such a long way away. But now he's eight and we're getting closer and it's looking less and less likely that Dad's going to come through on his word. Um, but God's not like that to you and me, is he? No, uh, he is a good father and he loves to keep his word. And in fact, it's honouring to him that you would hold him to his promises, that you would know his promises and take hold of them. So if you want to pray powerful prayers, know the promises of God. God has promised us that he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. God has promised us that if we confess our sins, he is loving and faithful, he'll forgive us, and he'll cleanse us, he'll, he'll make us new. God has promised uh, that Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will never, ever overcome it. God has made many wonderful promises to you in his scriptures. So be like Nehemiah, know your scriptures, know the promises of God, and then hold him to them. Take hold of those promises and claim them in your life. 
So Nehemiah concludes his prayer by asking two things of God in verses 10 and 11. He asks that God would act for the sake of the people and the city that bear his name. And then he prays that God would in fact let him play a part in this work of restoring and reviving his people. And that's so often the events and the way that this is played out. It's so often the way in, in the stories of the people that God uses in his purposes. God begins by preparing a, an opportunity for us, putting us in a position where we're getting skills and opportunities and works and, and relationships and, and training that will make us useful to him. And then he begins to prepare our hearts. As we start to pray for the things that matter to God, well, they start to matter more and more to us and our hearts start beating after his heart. And then it dawns on us like it did on Nehemiah somewhere throughout those 120 days, maybe I'm, maybe I'm the person that, that could do this. Maybe I'm in the best position to bring about what God needs to bring about in this current situation. And friends, it was going to be costly. He was the cupbearer to the king, one of the most influential places in the whole Persian Empire. But he was willing to put God's purposes and God's plans before his career aspirations. We're going to see the risk that he took and how he, he really was the perfect man for the job uh, and, and how he was uh, just a great leader of God's people. But we're also, as we go through Nehemiah, we're going to constantly be left with a little bit of a sense of disappointment because it's going to take more than just walls around God's people to make them distinct. It's going to take more than just the reading of God's word to revive their hearts. No, what God's people needed were new hearts inwardly, transformation. And Nehemiah, though a great leader, looked forward to an even greater leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. Nehemiah would restore the walls, but Jesus would restore the relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so we're going to finish tonight by taking bread and juice, a symbol that reminds us of the greater leader, the Lord Jesus, and his love for us. He was a leader who would not just leave the pleasures of the cities of, city of Persia, he would leave the riches of highest heaven to come down and serve you and me. He too would weep over Jerusalem, not because the walls were broken down, they were put back up in his time, but because the people within those walls had rebellious hearts, had hardened their heart to God and rejected his prophets. He too would pray that God's promises would be fulfilled. In fact, he would become the fulfillment of those promises. He would take responsibility for sin so much that we're going to hold in our hands symbols of the fact that he took on himself your and my sin and he dealt with it and took it away. His body was broken so that you and I could be forgiven. His blood was poured out so that our sins could be washed away. So friends, as we go through the book of Nehemiah, we're going to be thinking about who we are, a distinct people of God. We're going to be thinking about what kind of lives we live, a holy people set apart for him. And it's all possible. It's all going to take place because of the greater Nehemiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who loved us and gave his life for us. As Nehemiah did, the right way to start is to 
acknowledge our failure to be faithful to God the way he's been faithful to us. So I'm going to give you just one moment to stop and confess personally and privately. And then together we're going to say a corporate prayer of confession uh, as a family. Let's pray to God.